Hello, and welcome to the Healthcare Law Today podcast presented by Foley and Lardner. Each month, we are joined by a different thought leader to discuss current legal trends in the healthcare industry. I'm your host, Judy Waltz, partner and chair of Foley's healthcare industry team. It's a pleasure to have you joining us today. Before we begin our show, I want to remind you to subscribe to the Healthcare Law Today podcast series, either on iTunes or your preferred podcast app. Please also visit our website at healthcarelawtoday.com. For today's show, my colleague Anil Shankar discusses California's new Medicaid waiver called CalAIM with Jackie Bender from the Los Angeles County Department of Health Services. This waiver contains innovative programs to provide coverage through managed care plans for alternative services and settings designed to address the whole person and not just their medical needs traditionally covered through Medicaid and other insurance programs. Take it away, Anil. Thanks, Judy, and, and hi, everyone. My name is Anil Shankar. I'm a partner with uh, Foley and Lardner LLP with a practice focused on the Medicaid space. I work on reimbursement and compliance issues with a primary focus on issues affecting safety net healthcare providers. And we've got a, a fascinating podcast topic for you today. I'll be speaking with a, a good friend and one of my favorite clients, Jackie Bender from the Los Angeles County Department of Health Services. And we've got a very timely topic for the discussion as California and Los Angeles County recently received approval for its new Medicaid waiver called CalAIM. This is a section 1150 waiver approved by the federal government. And California's Medicaid program called Medi-Cal has a long history of developing innovative programs and proposals through the 1115 and other waiver processes, many of which end up catching on and being replicated around the country. Uh, this new CalAIM waiver uh, continues to break new ground as it contains innovative programs to provide coverage through managed care plans for alternative services and settings. They're designed to address the whole person and not just their uh, medical needs that are traditionally available through Medicaid and other insurance programs. And as part of the topic today, and the reason we're talking with Jackie about these things is that these programs are not entirely new. CalAIM is new, but it builds on a framework that was laid down over many years by LA County and, and other public entities in California. Um, and with this new waiver, these pre-existing programs are being moved into the state's chosen delivery system, which is um, this is really doubling down on the use of Medicaid managed care and is putting Medicaid managed care um, in the center of administering and contracting and ensuring the availability of these alternative services and settings and supports, sometimes called in lieu of services or community supports, as well as enhanced case management and other programs designed to help the, the whole person. And with these changes, with the transition from an old waiver to a new waiver, it raises a number of, of opportunities to bring social determinants of health um, supports into the mainstream in California, potentially reaching a lot more um, Medicaid beneficiaries than previously. But it also raises a lot of challenges. Um, and Jackie has been spearheading these issues for many years, first through her longtime role as the vice president of policy at CAPH, where she helped design California's whole person care pilots, um, which began this work five or six years ago, and now through her job as the Chief Strategy Finance Officer at LA County. So we're gonna have a discussion about some of the opportunities and challenges of California's experimental new waiver. So hi, Jackie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Anel, thanks for having me. So I thought we'd start, if you could tell me a little bit about some of the programs that LA County is operating and how they are helping to serve the, uh, the whole person. 
Sure. Um, so like you said, a lot of this work started in earnest under whole person care, although in LA County, I would argue that a lot of this work was beginning even before that. Um, I think a, f- a favorite thing to say in Washington is that, you know, most good policy ideas don't come from Washington. They in fact come from uh, local communities and places where, you know, individuals on the ground are trying to solve real problems that they see in their communities. So I think that's true of, of LA and it's true of part of how whole person care became a statewide program was drawing on the experience of local counties and trying to address issues of uh, people experiencing homelessness, seeing a lot of people show up in the ER and the hospitals and the emer- um, inpatient setting who really were there not for lack of good medical care, but they, they had other social needs and, the, and health insurance, traditional health insurance programs weren't addressing those. And weren't there better ways that we could think of investing funding and treating people's needs really at the source of the problem, the root cause of the problem. Um, Those kinds of issues are all of the reasons why we ended up creating a program like Whole Person Care. Um, So under that program, which started in 2015, a lot of the services that were we were able to grow and strengthen in Los Angeles County um, were things like increasing the number of people we were able to serve um, in permanent supportive housing by making sure that we had the wraparound services available so that they could get a, maybe a federal voucher through HUD. But a lot of those vouchers require wraparound services in order to kind of activate them. And um, this pilot allowed an opportunity to create those services and to expand the availability of those services as an example. We did a lot of work also with just alternative settings to hospital stays, places where people who didn't need acute care anymore, but really didn't have a safe place to recover and get better and maybe help get navigated to more permanent services. Um, We were able to increase the reach of those kinds of services, which we call sometimes recuperative care or medical respite. Um, and other interim housing solutions that essentially is just trying to address a very widespread problem in Los Angeles and California, and I know in other states too, of um, people who are experiencing homelessness for a wide variety of reasons. That is very true. Could you say a little bit about the housing then? What do you do with these individual clients when they are in need of housing? Sure. So um, a lot of people I think when they maybe, when any hospital might uh, see a lot of clients like this or patients, um, it's people that haven't been in contact with services for long enough to actually get them housed. So it can start with just housing navigation and um, trying to get all of the paperwork lined up so that a person is ready to apply for federal HUD vouchers or go into the coordinated entry system, which helps match people with housing. So people need help, you know, getting their social security card or a driver's license or any other number of documents. Um, They need help applying for the Medi-Cal program. I don't recall the last time I saw a Medi-Cal application, but I'm sure it's probably at least 10 pages long. I'm sure it's actually longer. These are complicated forms and they require a lot of information and a lot of verification to get in the program. And it's only through eligibility through these various programs that you gain access to services. So this eligibility gateway is so key and, and it just requires so much effort that it, you know, you need a lot of support to get someone through those gates. And then once you're there, you have the opportunity to, 
you know, maybe get signed up with a primary care provider, you get uh, case managers. And then if you eventually uh, have the good fortune of getting matched with a housing resource, um, like a permanent way to fund your ongoing rent, which Medi-Cal will not pay for. So that comes from HUD or that comes from other local sources. Um, then, you know, we have a really wide array in Los Angeles County of housing options. And so um, our team will work to place that person with the resource that best matches their need and uh, get them stably housed, get them situated and, and then provide ongoing support services, whatever those needs may be that the client has, which, you know, could fluctuate month to month and year to year. So it's just having that resource there for helping ensure that the client stays housed and has all of their needs met to be successful in that housing environment. Yeah, that's great. I, I know it's been a really successful program that's helped a lot of people. You mentioned the, the federal prohibition that the Medicaid program just they have a firewall up where they will not pay for, for rent or, or for what they call room and board um, for non-institutionalized individuals. Um, but there's been a fair amount of there's federal guidance suggesting that Medicaid will pay for a variety of the ancillary services that you that you mentioned, including you know housing modifications, um, helping people with move-in assistance, um, and then tenancy supports to help them remain housed. And it's been a beneficial arrangement for for, for LA County um, to to be able to receive the Medicaid dollars for the for for, for several years now. And what we're seeing is that you know, under this Cal aim, they're, they're moving the authority over to, to pay for those services out of the state's hands, where they used to pay directly under whole person care, and instead into the hands of the, the Medicaid managed care plans. And I wonder if you could tell us a bit about some of the advantages and disadvantages of that shift. Um, you know, how has the take up been? Are the plans ready to, to step into this role? Sure. I mean, I think it is a real mixed bag. And so maybe I'll start with the things that are really great about it, and then I can share some of the the anxieties that I have and others have, um, because I think, as you said in the introduction, we are just launching this new system. It, it went live January 1st. Um, so it hasn't even been live for two months because uh, now we're in February, but it's, <laughs> I don't know when this will get aired, but uh, it's it's new. And so I think a lot of the anxieties are just that, and they have we have to see how it plays out. But in terms of what's really positive, you know, the the original way we were funding this was through uh, a Medicaid 1115 waiver. Those waivers get approved on five-year cycles through CMS. And so it does create this kind of five-year cliff that you're always facing where the funding runs out, you have to get a new agreement. And that the upside of an 1115 is you get a lot of flexibility and you get to experiment. And that's exactly what we did under whole person care. And I think we demonstrated a lot of really successful interventions that um, attempt to support people's social needs in a way that the, the traditional Medi-Cal program just does not. The benefit of running it through the managed care plans though is, is it's a different financing mechanism. It is through this, this opportunity that I think is in the managed care rule and you could cite uh, the regs better than I can <laughs> for the audience, but, um, or they may already know it, but it's through these in lieu of services and it's an opportunity to use the existing managed care premium, but to support alternative services that aren't usually covered in the state plan, but they are in lieu of the state plan covered service. And the benefit of running the money this way is that basically it's not 
um, it's not a special project. It's not a five-year deal. It is, it is essentially allowed to happen indefinitely. And if there really is a good relationship between investing in social services and saving on the healthcare side, it's a really good way to just have some longevity to the way your program is set up. I don't know if you want to say anything more about the actual regs. I don't want to bore anybody with the actual regs, but um, I mean, the opportunity we're talking about here is, is the, the federal Medicaid managed care rule, which talks about, gives affirmative authority for plans to build in coverage of what they call in lieu of services. These are alternatives to what normally a Medicaid plan would cover, which is based on what the state covers to a state plan. And there, there's actually a fair argument that plan, plans can always do this stuff, that if a plan wants to pay for housing for someone, even the, the rent, and they think they have savings that'll generate enough savings from paying for inpatient stays or whatever, they could choose to spend their money that way. Um, but by and large, they haven't, or if they have, they've done it in a piecemeal and you know non-organized fashion. So I, th I think what's happening under CalAIM is a, a vision of the state that they wanna take these opportunities, make them more formalized, more widespread, more available, and build them into like the, the package of what really is available. Um, for Medicaid beneficiaries through their managed care plans. And the benefit for the plans is that when, when the state is rolling this out, there's now affirmative contract authority identifying the services that, that, that can be provided with some state infrastructure. Um, this, I mean, you can speak to this more than I can, Jackie, but this, this does have some benefits um, operationally because it means, or it should mean in theory anyway, that the multiple plans are operating under a similar set of packages and not each designing their own, which can lead to some unfortunate fragmenting and the real benefit here for the plans is that they actually can get what, what the accounts in, the, in this business is like credit for furnishing these services. When they, when they pay for these services, when they pay for someone's housing supportive services or for moving assistance to get them into a, into a housing unit, those costs can be recognized when the state does their future capitation rates. I mean, they're, they're also going to reflect that there's a reduction, hopefully, in um, inpatient utilization or some other kind of utilization that offsets it but it's not just a total loss for the plan because it, it, without the state's authority, the plan could, if they, they could choose to spend their money in, in that way, but it wouldn't get treated as a cost for future capitation rates. So what, what CalAIM is doing is really making new opportunities to incentivize um, plans to want to do these things and giving them an infrastructure so that they can do it. That said, one of the key features of these federal in lieu of regs is that they are voluntary for the plan and for the beneficiary. For the beneficiary, I think that's pretty straightforward. They don't want to force anyone to have to get a service they don't want. If they prefer to get their traditional Medicaid benefit, they can do so. Um, but the idea of it being voluntary for the plan, I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that, Jackie, because it, it, how, how has TakeUp been? Is there a, the uniform rollout that this, I think the state was hoping for, or is it more patchwork? Sure, sure. I mean, you raised so many uh, good points with just touching on the the way that the that the regulatory framework is structured and how that incentivizes plans. I mean, before we had this big statewide rollout and a real campaign behind um, standardizing these opportunities statewide, like you said, plans could do certain things, but you didn't have the benefit of knowing that that expenditure and utilization could get built into the rates. And you also then had a patchwork where when plans chose to do it, it was just because it was it boiled down to, to leadership and, and leadership decisions and variation in local culture in terms of whether or not you know localities felt like this was a good investment or not, 
whether or not you had an innovative plan leader or not. Um, and so there was really wide variation across the state in terms of the ways in which health plans were willing to invest in these kinds of services. By even though it's voluntary, by making it a statewide effort, there's been you know a couple of years at least now since we had a one-year delay with COVID um, of stakeholder engagement and rollout and preparation and anticipation for this to get launched. And I think because of that, even though it's voluntary, there is still a lot of pressure on the plans to participate and to at least give it a try. It, this, this is still an experiment in a different form, but it has the state's backing. It has CMS approval. I think there's a promise that everyone wants to try to make this work. And um, I think right now the plans are trying to be good participants. There are, for just to get to illustrate, so there are 14 different in lieu of services that the state kind of blessed and that CMS has blessed. And the plans could choose to do all 14. They could choose to do none. They could choose to do some of them. Um, most plans have elected to do just some of them so far. And they're trying to ramp up over the course of the next couple of years to add more. And I think that makes a lot of sense, right? We're kind of dipping your toe in the water, um, seeing operationally how you make this happen, what's the expenditure actually look like, uh, what's the return on investment in terms of utilization on the healthcare side. I think for those reasons, we're gonna see hopefully a, uh, an eventual ramp up, but it's also, going to require a lot of, I think, encouragement from all the parties and including from the state and, and also some state financial support to, to basically get everyone over the finish line and really give this a full try. Yeah, that's, that's great. You know, and something that you and I have talked about before is, is, you know, some of the pros and cons of like the uh, medicalization of these social services. I, I mean, one of the reasons why there's so much talk these days about the social determinants health in the healthcare space is it, it's largely financial in nature, right? Like social services have historically been under under resourced in in America for a long time, whereas healthcare, I don't think you can say the same thing about healthcare. You know, the money doesn't always get to the, to the right places, but there's certainly a lot of money in the system. Um, and with more and more managed care entities and, and other entities taking on at risk or value-based solutions, there's now this thinking that, well, we might be able to take some of that healthcare money and use it to invest in social services in a way that wasn't really possible, you know, decades past, um, and in a way that could be really beneficial to the social services network, because there's, it would be a whole new set of resources to tap into. And you know, frankly, it does seem a little bit like fair game, right? Because insurers, if, if there is an effective housing network or a food assistance network, that should work to help reduce medical expenditures. And the thought is, well, that we can we can have them pay for for some of the things that they're that are saving. But I kind of I wanted to touch on with you today, like some some of the maybe the pros and cons of doing so, because you know I, I, you start off at the beginning by saying a lot of these programs have been around for a long time, even predating the investment by the Medicaid program in them. And a lot of good solutions come from local entities who are just trying to serve their community better. And it wasn't really financial in the same way. They weren't doing this to get Medicaid money. They were doing it because these people needed housing or these people needed food or they needed support so they could take their medication in a reliable way. And so it seems like that's still an area that we're still working on or waiting to be seen is like, well, how, how does that sort of altruism or sense that we're trying to serve this community link up with the idea of, of Medicaid managed care getting involved 
when really they're only kind of authorized to do it when it saves money through the healthcare system. Yeah, and I don't know that we know the answer yet. That's part of uh, the experiment uh, part of all of this. And certainly when we have uh, worked with the plans over the last several months, this issue of cost effectiveness does come up repeatedly. It's also one of the conditions of the waiver. So th the thing with these services is they are um, authorized under a joint kind of two different waivers that are jointly authorized um, but many of them are through this 1915B waiver, which has with it um, some cost effectiveness requirements. And this idea of cost effectiveness has come up repeatedly in our conversations with the plans, um, because at some point there will actually be some sort of evaluation and conclusion to and that we need to be able to show that, that these investments are in fact cost effective. However, that ends up getting defined. We don't actually even know yet. So the question is cost effectiveness for whom? And it gets to this wrong pocket problem. And you know, if I make an investment in housing, who gains and who should therefore be chipping in to pay for these services? I think what we're the balance that California is trying to strike through this, but and I'd be interested to get your take on this, Anil, too, is that there's some share that the Medi-Cal program should pay. There is some benefit that Medi-Cal and health insurance plans and the state get when people are stably housed and are, are receiving the right social services and supports to help them you know, live a more dignified and healthy life. And it's not fair to just you know, have all that money go back in the pockets of managed care plans or go back to the state if there's not some sort of commensurate investment on the housing side. And, and the hard part about housing is that it is it is a long-term commitment. People typically need housing support when, when they're able to qualify for vouchers and need this level of supportive services. They need it for their entire lives. And that's just a different time horizon than, you know, an annual uh, actuarial, you know, PMPM PM analysis that you need for health plans to operate. So the time horizon issue is difficult. Um, the wrong pocket problem is difficult. And then how you actually measure whether or not this is cost effective and, and who's defining that is an issue. But I'm curious kind of how you've seen it, Anil, when you've thought about, I know we've had many conversations about uh, this particular topic and what's a good way to actually fund these services long-term. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think anyone has the magic bullet. I, I do agree with your earlier point that it, you know, this far the, the managed care plans have been, you know, good partners and attempt, like, it seems like the, the Cal aim has been initially successful, at least in, in getting people to be interested. And I think this, this new money will be coming into the system, right? It's coming into the managed care plans and they are, and they are interested in taking it up. I think where that kind of challenge or the rubber, the rubber hits the road here is like, well, how do we figure out who, who gets this money? Like, maybe you can speak to what you've seen on it from an operational perspective, but like, how do they figure out which individuals are eligible for these services, eligibility criteria, and then the plans have to, to have to implement them. But it seems to me there's a really difficult question here of like, how can you tell when someone needs uh, housing support or some help, you know, cleaning their apartment um, and doing so will lead to medical cost savings in, in, in the, such a way that the plan is sort of uh, obligated or able to pay for them versus individuals who would just benefit from those services because it's a, it's a good thing. They, they actually just do need help. 
but the connection to health is a little bit more tenuous. I, it, it, it's hard to, to slice that onion uh, and figure out who's responsible for which. And I, I think it's part of what you're getting at with the, with the wrong pocket problem, where we just don't know which interventions are going to benefit on the health plan side in terms of producing cost savings. But we do know that everyone, or a, not everyone, but a, a broad swath of the population, uh, an unfortunately large swath of the population in places like LA County and other urban settings, do just need a lot of support. And doing so is in their best interest and helps you know support these communities. So. Yeah, so so what the state is doing to try to address the problems that you're identifying here, um, which are very real, um, are a couple of things. One, they are trying to create some really specific definitions of, of who is eligible for these in lieu of services um, and who is not, um, and how long you can offer them for to give plans some comfortable space to operate without having complete uncertainty about like, well, if I if I give this person housing and then they don't, you know, use the ER for two, like, do they have to not use the ER for a certain amount of time in order for this to be okay? Like, you know, I think the state's trying to remove some of that uncertainty by creating these definitions and, and CMS has seen all of those and I think has blessed those as well. But another thing at the same time that we expect to happen a couple of years from now is that I think regardless almost of what the data says, I think the state will probably try to extract some kind of savings from the health plan rates. We don't know how much, and it'll probably be something like a slower growth rate than what they might have otherwise authorized, but they're going to somehow account for the fact that through the opportunity to make these in lieu of services investments, plans will have likely saved money on hospital services or other types of expensive interventions that Medicaid can pay for on a regular basis. And, and by announcing that they're going to do that in a couple of years, it's just another incentive for the plans to actually take up these services, which, as you mentioned before, are voluntary. But if they know that they're going to get a haircut in a couple of years anyway, it's just another reason that they should try to actually make that investment in those in lieu of services so that they're prepared to operate under a you know slightly tight, tighter fiscal controls in a couple of years. Yeah, that that's great. That's very helpful. I, w- I wanted to change directions just a, a little bit. Do, do you have any recommendations? I mean, you've been in charge and overseeing some of the contracting negotiations, the and the you know internal restructuring that has to happen to modify your programs to fit into like the managed care space. Do you have any recommendations or thoughts about entities um, that are moving into this space? You know, such you know the social determinants, health, alternative services, and settings, and and how they can make that transition successful. Part of it is that I have not been the one on the ground from day one in Los Angeles. A lot of other people have done that heavy lifting and that good work. And because of of those investments that have occurred over the last you know six plus years, um, we're in like a pretty decent position to be launching these services in a managed care context. Although you know, I will note as a side point, and we can come back to this if you want that. Social services is not historically set up to be able to bill health insurance. It's just not the financial model. And the amount of information and tracking and um, systems you need to have in place in order to do that successfully is is a really heavy lift. Like we don't normally have access at the housing level of services to someone's Medi-Cal eligibility status and which health plan they're enrolled in. And we don't typically do prior authorization. 
we don't submit, I don't even remember the name of the claim form, like an 837, whatever the claim form is that you have to send into the health plan to get paid. It's just not the way those, those systems have operated. And so even though we, ha we have a lot of good things in place, we're having to do major modifications to our IT systems to be able to do this kind of billing and tons and tons of staff training and just new new operational processes on the ground. So it's extremely heavy lift, even though we've been doing this for a while. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it's, it's challenging even for any like LA County, which ha has a lot of IT infrastructure and support. I can only imagine how challenging it is for a social service provider that wants to directly contract with a plan that has no involvement in the healthcare space at all. I wouldn't underestimate those challenges. I mean, the the legal risks are, are there as well. I mean, there's a there's a fairly straightforward argument. Um, there, there are also some counter arguments, but there's a, there's a real question about whether you become a HIPAA covered entity if you start billing for even a non-traditional healthcare service and you, if it starts getting paid for through healthcare plans or an organization of any amount of size that is billing would probably want to start having like a, a compliance officer, a security officer, they need to make sure they can meet the documentation. And that there's a lot of challenges to go along with being a Medicare and Medicaid provider. And for some of these organizations that are now being contracted with plans, they have no experience with healthcare. Um, there's laws like the kickback statute or the False Claims Act all of a sudden will be applicable to them in ways they weren't before. And they can have real impacts on what are previously were normal ways they, they ran their business. So I think those challenges and the, the transitional challenges are, are real and shouldn't be underestimated. Yeah, and, and maybe the way I don't know if this is advice necessarily, but maybe some of the ways that we're able to get around that, so to speak, is that LA DHS, the Department of Health Services, we, you know, through our own work, have this vast network of housing providers that we contract with. And as also a major hospital system and, and um, healthcare system, you know, we have a lot of experience with billing and with managed care plans. And so we have a person in-house that has done contracting for years with health plans. And we were able to leverage that resource uh, because we're both hospital and social services to bring those things together and, and successfully get to the place where we could do all of the billing. Um, but none of, none of our contractors at social services organizations have to... Um, they don't have to set up anything on their own per se, but they're they're using our system and, and we're the ones that are, I think, taking the accountability for meeting all of those kinds of requirements. I don't know, you know, if you're if you're starting from scratch and you are a CBO out in the community, you know, maybe there's conversations to have with with other partners in the local county government, other entities to think like what are the best arrangements so that we can overcome some of those challenges. Yeah, that's certainly an interesting uh, approach that others can explore is the idea of contracting with, you know, a local public entity or a healthcare system um, where they work as a subcontractor so they don't have the primary relationship with the healthcare billing and reimbursement and instead are responsible through their contracts. But I mean, some of those requirements are going to flow down, right? Like if you need data on an individual level, it's going to have to come from the one doing the service. So it's still going to be some challenges, but it certainly can can help and have a team up with a, a partner like LA County that has a lot of that infrastructure in place already. All right. Well, do you have any other recommendations uh, or thoughts that you wanted to conclude with about uh, CalAIM or moving the future of this space? I mean, I guess 
back to the this your initial question about the pros and cons you know i think it is a really exciting opportunity to see if there's a sustainable way for the medical program in california to be contributing its fair share to social services investments that that benefit everyone in the community including the medical program it is also requiring the entire social services infrastructure to become kind of medicalized and to know how to operate and build in a, in a health insurance environment, which is new and is a heavy lift, as I mentioned. And it also requires thinking through, you know, how it's, it's adding a whole other layer of like Medicaid managed care requirements on top of lots of programs that have other requirements already from other federal agencies for how they need to operate or other state or local requirements. And how you bring managed care plans into the fold and integrate them into that local framework that already exists is really important. And it's so important to have uh, ongoing dialogue with your plans. Um, you know, hopefully there's already a good relationship if uh, you are in a managed care environment and um, you could use, you know, whatever foundation is there to build on that to help launch these new kinds of services. But it's still a challenge because, you know, everyone operates kind of in their own silos according to their sets of rules. And sometimes you even have issues with just, you know, using different terms for the same kind of service. You know, there's just, there's cultures within each kind of sphere of service um, health versus housing versus other social services. And you have to spend some time to bridge those. So I think just having those strong partnerships and the opportunities to work together over a long period of time, celebrate easy wins, you know, start on things that you can achieve, I think to build that trust so that you can work on the harder things down the road. Well, I think that's a great way to wrap up, Jackie. I appreciate your time today and always appreciate being able to chat with you about these interesting topics. So uh, thanks for coming to the podcast and I guess we'll sign off. Uh, back to you, Judy. Thank you, Anil. And thank you, Jackie Bender, for a great discussion. We appreciate you taking the time to join us today. We want to thank everyone for listening to the Healthcare Law Today podcast, your connection to timely legal updates in the healthcare industry. Healthcare Law Today is a monthly program, and we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast or to Foley's Healthcare Law Today blog at healthcarelawtoday.com. If you like the show, don't forget to subscribe and be sure to rate us five stars. Until next time on the Healthcare Law Today podcast, I'm Judy Waltz at Foley & Lardner. We appreciate you joining us. Thank you.